Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 22nd of October with me, Ian Welsh. Recently, I spoke with Peter Williams, President of the International Institute of Rural Reconstruction. We talked about some of the work of the Institute in the rural communities of Southeast Asia and Africa and some of the factors that are necessary points of focus for effective development projects. We also discussed the IIRR's Climate Smart Village Model. That's coming up, as is Walgreen Boots Alliance's Una Kent, Vice President CSR International, with her thoughts on some of the key points from a half-day conference on climate change and human health, co-hosted by WBA and Innovation Forum earlier this week. First up, though, is some sustainable business news. The run-up to the COP26 meetings in Glasgow is dominating the news, with the sort of combination you might expect of doom and gloom about the likelihood or not of success and some scare stories about the economic implications of making the necessary transformation to decarbonise the global economy, and not enough coverage of the catastrophic costs of failing to act as ever. What was as unsurprising as it was disappointing was the leak of documents to the BBC that purported to show that a number of governments have been lobbying the UN to water down the need to immediately move away from fossil fuels. Usual suspects, Saudi Arabia, Australia and Japan are in the frame, pushing back at the UN's recommendations for action at the same time as they are being asked for significant new commitments to help put the brakes on climate change and limit global warming to 1.5 Celsius. On a more positive note, the BBC does report that the overwhelming majority of the comments from governments in the cache of documents are constructive. Queen Elizabeth's role at international events in the UK is usually to turn up and shake hands, but she's apparently not very happy that other heads of state and government aren't prepared to do the same. Opening the Welsh Assembly last week, she was overhead complaining that world leaders had been slow to confirm attendance in Glasgow and that there had been too much talking and not enough doing. Among the confirmed no-shows are Russian President Vladimir Putin and apparently China's Xi Jinping. Though the news that Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi will take part in person was a boost to the prospects of meaningful progress in Glasgow. And at least he'll be back in the Queen's good books. The first part of this year's UN Convention on Biological Diversity at a meeting in China, also known as the Biodiversity COP, finished up with pledges to adopt the UN's post-2020 biodiversity loss targets. These include pledges to halt nature loss by 2030, with net positive impacts thereafter. The plan is set to be ratified when the parties meet again in the spring. Credit Suisse has been fined £147 million by UK financial authorities over a scandal involving corruption in the Mozambique tuna fishing sector. Staff at the investment bank were found to have taken and paid bribes while arranging $1.3 billion of financing for the industry. The UK's Financial Conduct Authority found that the bank had failed to manage properly the risk of financial crime. Credit Suisse has also agreed to write off debt totalling $200 million owed by Mozambique that was tainted by corruption. The action is part of an overall settlement worth $475 million that Credit Suisse has made with the UK, US and Swiss financial regulators. And finally, showing that where the Innovation Forum podcast leads, others eventually follow, I've been pleased to see the in-depth coverage in The Guardian over the past week on the risks of an epidemic of chronic fatal kidney disease among outdoor workers forced to put in long hours in ever-hotter environments. Featuring Laser Network's Jason Glazer, a regular guest in the podcast, and his colleagues, The Guardian warns that kidney disease linked to heat stress could become a major health epidemic for millions around the world. It's great to see this work getting the coverage it deserves. Earlier this week, Innovation Forum and Walgreens Boots Alliance collaborated on a half-day conference online. Over the course of three panels, expert contributors discussed climate health issues and where business can make a difference, emerging business system resilience in education and behaviour change to empower consumers and communities. The videos of all three sessions are already available on the Innovation Forum website 
and the audio will be released on our podcast channel over the coming weeks. As a taster, here's Una Kent, Vice President CSR International at WBA, as she sums up some of what she's taking away from the panel conversations. Let's start at the beginning with Dr Bernstein, who talked about climate change being shockingly absent of human concern and the role. So for me, that sparks this idea of how can we, using events like this, drive and stimulate that conversation in the next few weeks as COP occurs. So that one really, really struck me. He also said this notion about bringing climate down to size. And I think in that last panel, we heard a lot about that as well, this idea that it's a big elephant to chew on. So how do we bring it down to size? And some great confidence in that last panel that we could tackle air pollution or malaria we could lean in and tackle these things and make a tangible impact, which which I absolutely loved. The idea that the planet's health is everyone's health and that sense of, you know, these two things are steeply and deeply interconnected and we shouldn't be necessarily looking at them through individual lenses as we have been to this point. One of the things that came out again was this idea of literacy and especially in that last panel, but also in the second panel, this idea that education, information, people being a little bit more literate about this topic can be really powerful. And for me, that strikes me as what's the role of WBA? What's the role of other businesses like ours and like the many on this panel and in the audience to drive that up, that literacy that then sparks change? I think I would bring it back round ultimately to what I said right at the beginning, which is what I love about the nature of what this discussion has been today is, is this idea that the Lancet said addressing climate change is the greatest public health opportunity. And I just really love that. And that opportunity has been brought to life through the ideas of collaboration, the ideas of owning behaviour and changing behaviour, the ideas of making it personal, bringing it into me and my business, which I think I love. And I'll just maybe finish with saying last week, our our new CEO, or relatively recently new CEO, redefined what WBA is all about. What she said was, we want to be a leading partner in reimagining local healthcare and well-being for all. I think that really sums up the role that WBA want to continue to play. We're all about collaboration. We're already working with so many of the companies represented on this panel. We don't have all the answers yet, but we are wide open to exploring and driving for meaningful change, resilient, sustainable change. The Innovation Forum team are all looking forward to our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference, which will return from the 30th of November to the 2nd of December. 300 plus delegates will be learning from the insights of Tesco, Dole Foods, Museum Mass, the European Commission, RSPO, Mars and many more. Full details of how to save £75 on passes are on the website. Recently I spoke with Peter Williams, President of the International Institute of Rural Reconstruction, about some of his work building resilient rural communities in Southeast Asia and Africa, particularly those involving smallholder farmers. Why don't we start with a bit of an introduction to the work of the IIRR. Perhaps you can give us some historical context and to where you work and your funding model. Sure. So IIRR, as you perhaps alluded to, we're an international nonprofit organization. We're actually headquartered in the Philippines. The organization itself and our work has been around for actually over 90 years. 
it took roughly about 27 years before we registered the entity formally. So we often refer to our 60-year history, but really the organization's core ethos and our practices date back much further. We operate globally as an organization, but we maintain country offices across nine countries. So we're in Philippines, where we're headquartered, obviously, Cambodia, Myanmar. In Africa, we have also offices in Kenya, Uganda, South Sudan, Ethiopia, and we maintain an office in the U.S. So the organization at its core is very much focused on rural development. That is to say, we work to empower and support rural communities wherever they exist to enable them to have the tools that they need to survive and to thrive, quite frankly. And over the last 60 to 90 years, the organization has maintained that approach where we believe that the best approach in empowering and providing agency to these groups is to ensure that they have the resources that are needed. And we do that through what we call a very much a community-led approach to development. So that has been at the core of what we do and, and how we do it. And what about your funding model? Where does your support come from? As many international NGOs, we operate through strong partnerships and support through many bilateral and multilateral groups. So we maintain a very strong, uh, healthy relationship with various UN agencies. So think the Food Agricultural Organization or World Food Programme. But there are many others that we've supported or received support from, UNDP among others, bilateral groups like the Swiss government, German government, and British government, many throughout our decades of support. But we also receive and have received and continue to receive support through private foundations, many in the United States, but many in other countries, as well as individual donors who see the work that we're doing and believe it's important to support what by some measure can be considered an underrepresented uh, focus, which is rural development. This spread allows the organization to remain relevant as we depend on these necessary and important resources to keep the work going. Your work focuses on five themes, economic empowerment, health, food systems, environment and education. Why don't we go through them in turn and think about what you see as an organisation as the main challenges in each and how your programmes counter them. So economic empowerment. The main challenge within economic empowerment for us is how multifaceted the reality of disempowerment actually is. If you're in the global south today, particularly in a rural environment, your economic status is often affected by social, political environment, economic, and other factors. And because of this, economic empowerment in of itself has been truly in one of the most difficult global challenges to address. The main challenge for us, as I alluded to just now, is the existence of several codependent dynamics that keep people you know, actually in poverty. And so an effective program that promotes empowerment simply has to tackle these dynamics simultaneously. It's going to be a recipe for failure, so to speak, if we focus somehow exclusively on one area within economic empowerment. And that's why we have within economic empowerment a thematic structure, we have four distinct programs. So think financial inclusion. You know, this is where we support the financial literacy and training and simply access to funds. We give this information, this content to rural individuals to, to help support their understanding. I talk about financial literacy. Second, we think about enterprise development. And this is simply because we recognize that there is no lack of ambition 
an interest in succeeding on the part of rural or local entrepreneurs. But very often they lack the know-how and the resources to get market support. And so we have really stepped in in programs we've developed in parts of Southeast Asia, in the Philippines, to do just that, working with communities, but at times local government. There are other areas such as social protection, because we quite frankly realize that in some instances, communities, households need access to cash, quite frankly. They're operating at the bottom of the pyramid and they often need very direct resources so that they can allocate where where they're based on their priorities, not ours or an external funder. These challenges and the ability to address them will continue, sadly, but we think that looking at the, the aspect of economic empowerment in a multidimensional way is really the best way forward. And I fail to mention that the fourth, which is about securing assets. You know, So for example, asset ownership, think about land and the challenge around land tenure, which has a gender dynamic to it, is a great inhibitor to local residents, local communities who want to obtain an access credit, for example. And that continues to be an issue around the world. So we've worked in partnership with central governments. I think about our work in Uganda, where we've partnered with the likes of UN Habitat to ensure that as as much as 20,000 households mainly women can actually have access to land titles. And these type of challenges, uh, sadly, as I mentioned, are still persistent, but we have had to create interesting and novel ways to address these challenges. Do you think that all too often too many Western-style development programmes are unable to appreciate traditional land tenure rights? I mean, it won't necessarily be uh, written on a bit of paper that a particular person owns a particular bit of land, but by tradition, that person's family does own that bit of land. It's just they have that's their tradition. It's not uh, written down in a big ledger. Do you think that there's a, often a problem that too many development or too many uh, agencies, too many programs fail to recognise that? I would extend that even further. I think there is often a, a failure for different reasons to understand the customary preferences of environments, contexts in which we as development agencies tend to to work. We have an approach that we've taken for over 60 years, which is hitting the ground softly and spending a lot more time listening than talking. And that's really important because you do need to be sensitive to the practices that are quite local, that are quite part of the vernacular. And that's something that one can't say or make enough of. And so to your point, yes, there needs to be an understanding of the way in which in some instances, customary practices or traditional, depending on how you look at it, exist alongside, coexist alongside more formal practices. And teething out those kind of nuances in a specific context is very important in order to have sustainable impact. Let's turn to health then. Obviously, it links very closely to economic empowerment. Economic empowerment will enable communities to be more healthy. But what are the kind of, for you, beyond that, the main challenges for rural communities in the global south in terms of health? What I'm about to say is going to be a recurring theme, I'm sure, through some of my answers. You know, but for us, I look back on the fact that even prior to my work at IIIR, I'd been spending the previous decade, almost decade and a half, working on health. And one of the key issues, which still remains an issue, certainly in the context of IIIR, is the social determinants of health. But looking at, you know, a sort of main challenge, tackling ill health globally, 
is that much of the attention and funding is often steered towards specific viruses, diseases, issues. And, you know, no one is saying, certainly I'm not saying that, you know, these issues don't require and need dedicated resource. But I would argue, and I think there's sufficient evidence to support that this is often done somehow in a vacuum. It sometimes ignores many of the underlying structures and conditions that need to be preconditioned for sustainable individual and community health. In terms of interventions, oftentimes these prerequisites are assumed to exist. The truth is it's only noted when a medical intervention does not work, then it's often realized that, oh, well, you know, we didn't have these in place. You know, quick example, without good nutrition, without families having access to proper nutrition, a vaccine is known to be less effective. We know this, and certainly the health and the public health community has documented this for several decades. I've seen literature that supports that fact, but very often because of the way in which funding, in fact, the model within development is often structured, it does not look as comprehensively as it ought to in a more rounded way at the challenges around health and the need for those prerequisites. So I would say that certainly continues to be one of the major challenges that we face. I was going to ask you in particular around specifically how excited you are about the malaria vaccine, which has just been rolled out. What kind of difference do you think that can make? No, vaccines play an important role in the history of medicine and the way in which it's been a pretty important part of the health system is well documented. And malaria as a centuries old disease is something that is certainly welcomed by many development agencies and should be welcomed by everyone around the world. I've been involved in prior roles in different capacities in addressing head on the challenges of malaria through a more broader lens, again, coming back to social determinants of health, where where we recognize that ecology plays a role in preventing vector-borne diseases. But I think to that point, vaccine has an important role to play in that overall dynamic. It's not just one or the other. It's really getting communities and agencies funders sensitized to the fact that it's it can work together. It's about health system strengthening oftentimes rather than just disproportionately focusing on one versus the other. I'd like your point you made earlier about the fact that that sort of program, very exciting in its own, can only work if you also look at nutrition. And obviously food systems is one of your themes of your work. So tell me more about the kind of challenges for you, particularly around, around food systems and how they're impacting with rural communities. Yeah, so two main challenges for us, you know, food exists within the space. One is food insecurity and exploitative agricultural practices, quite frankly. You know, today, as we sit here having this conversation, almost 700 million people in the world are affected by food insecurity. For the most part, there's a huge gender gap in assessing food uh, that has actually been on the increase. So I mentioned these two issues because they go hand in hand. They're very much mutually reinforcing. It's really important that we take, again, an integrated approach. So a quick example, our school nutrition program in the Philippines, it gives parents the assurance that their children are fed giving them the parents peace of mind and therefore making them often more likely to take a risk in transitioning their agricultural land to a regenerative ag model, uh, according to co-creation process that we work with them. So with this kind of transition, what we ultimately see is that yields increase as do their environmental health and nutritional value of the land. These kind of challenges need often to be met with a two-prong approach where we're working with the communities to show them the value of 
individual health, but bringing their attention to the importance of strengthening the health of the land. And in so doing, we're addressing that two-prong challenge that I mentioned, food insecurity, as well as poor agricultural practices that have dominated many of the, the settings in which we work. You're right. Local environmental issues are so important for these rural communities, where, as you say, the soils have been degraded, yields have been going down, and it's sort of a reversal of that is required to generate the levels of income and farm security going forward that will allow these uh, communities to have the potential to thrive. So that's kind of small scale or local environmental. What about broader environmental issues? I mean, we're talking in the run up to COP26 climate meetings in Glasgow in Scotland. And I mean, I wonder how do you work to alleviate the impacts of climate change? Because so often climate change is impacting most severely on those communities that are least able to deal with it. So how big an issue is the kind of global climate change debate for you and your work? I've often talked about the fact that our communities operate for the most part in the global south been obviously developing countries have obviously been some of the contexts in which they contribute least to emissions in terms of climate change challenge but they are the most vulnerable and that's been well documented and so we work with communities to take a very sensitive approach if we think about the fact that we are as an organization committed to development, we are tasked with providing these communities with the tools to develop, looking at developed countries as a model, but at the same time, not taking all the known practices of developed countries, because we know and we've seen now that the pace and the way in which developed countries have industrialized over the last several decades, if not uh, centuries, has been fundamentally flawed, fundamentally wrong. So we need to ensure that as we support communities in developing countries, the model that they ought to be taking towards industrialization need to be a bit more sensitive. And so it will most likely mean it's going to be at a slower pace. So we need to really combine or take into account those two approaches. One, that we want to support communities in developing, but we need to ensure that it's done in a rather sensitive way. And two, recognizing that these communities, they are bearing the brunt of a problem that they're not wholly responsible for at all. So we've invested in what we often refer to as a community-managed disaster risk reduction approach, which is really getting communities increasingly sensitized to the challenges around a changing climate and how to adapt and how to adapt at pace. So I talk a lot about the, the climate or work around Climate Smart Village. That's one way in which we get communities to operate and protect participate in this fluctuating situation in order to thrive, not just survive, but in order to, to thrive. So there is an emphasis on learning, so giving them the tools to understand how to adapt, but there is also the emphasis on really how to succeed, how to put in place particular strategies that will help them mitigate the shocks that they no doubt will have to address over the next uh, several decades. Education is your final theme, but let's think about education in terms of your Climate Smart Village model, which I think looks is fascinating. Perhaps talk a bit about how education sits across all the rest of your themes, and then let's talk about the specifics of the Climate Smart Village model that you've developed. Education for us is quite broad, but the fundamental issue for us is around access education, because we believe that it's really in a lack of access to education that is one of the, the most systemic challenges within development. And a lot of that has a gender lens to it, you know, so we know that girls are more disadvantaged, and that is something 
which is quite disappointing for us in the development community because we've been cognizant of this for quite some time. And so there's a lot more work that quite simply needs to be done. I'll give you two examples. IIRR has been working on access programs for education for quite some time. We've been really drilling home the importance of inclusion. That means really providing access to girls, to women, to the disabled, to children, to other groups, vulnerable groups that are in need. But second, it's the area that you have touched on, which is what we call skills for success, really ensuring that communities have the tools, have the skills that are necessary, the, the proven learning methods that we use to train, upskill, at times reskill rural people in order for them, in order to empower them to be able to increase their own income. And that is something that we see as, I would say, almost fundamental to how we work as an organization. We've touched on your climate smart model, which uh, your climate smart village model, which sounds very exciting. How does it work? And do you have any examples of success that you can point to? So our climate smart village model will sound like, at a glance, wind power turbines or solar panels. It's not. You know, simple definition is a climate smart village is for us, it's really a place, a village where people practice climate smart agriculture. And for those of you who aren't familiar, you know, climate smart ag really involves sustainably increasing agricultural productivity and income while building resilience to climate change and reducing greenhouse gases. For us, that work continues, and it's a five-prong approach that we take within the CSV. So it's regen ag, it's around nutrition, it's around DRR or disaster risk reduction, it's around education or capacity building, and WASH, water sanitation hygiene. Within that, we found it necessary to support communities in that manner by ensuring that there is a holistic approach to supporting them in thriving within a changing climate. And that work is work that we've done in... East Africa. It's work that we've done in parts of Southeast Asia. So for example, in East Africa in countries like Ethiopia, we've recently implemented a program called Gender Responsive Livelihood Diversification for Vulnerable Population, which is a sort of long-winded term. But with this program, we promoted livelihood and diversification and sustainable natural resource management to over 50,000 beneficiaries. And that work is very much within the context of the climate smart village model that we've rolled out in other places as well. We will see an increased demand for this model in many of the places that we work, sadly, because it's a necessary and important and timely response to the changing climate. And so we're very excited and we're very humbled at the same time to be to be leading on this front. And we've partnered with other agencies to implement this model in, in many parts of the world. And we look forward to scaling that. Let's think a bit about the future. How do you think that challenges for rural communities in the global south are going to change over the coming decade? And that's decades. I mean, we hear a lot of right now around you know 2030 targets for companies, 2050 targets for companies and businesses and nations getting involved in that as well. So how are the challenges for rural communities in that context going to change? It comes back to that point again. We see from where we're sitting, from what we're hearing on the ground, speaking to our communities, we do believe that, sadly, climate change will continue to have a disproportionate and negative impact in the communities that we, we address. So if you think about or you know, just remind yourself of the situation of many rural communities, they already 
lack basic and disproportionate access to some basic resources. They're often cut off physically. They lack access to a lot of the the services that you and I take for granted or their urban counterparts have access to. And so a changing climate and the issues, the knock-on effects of that, we anticipate will continue to create a series of shocks, some economic, uh, many economic, in fact, and many environmental. And what we believe is really critical here is that communities become even more sensitized you can't really school communities on this because this is already their lived realities. They are presenting it to us when we have conversations with them about what is happening on the ground. They're able to report the effects that they're already experiencing on seasonal rainfalls, longer dry periods. And so the way in which that's affecting their harvest, their livelihood, it's already being documented. So the one of the best ways that we think that we can step in and provide support is to reinforce that knowledge and to ensure that they have the best tools that they need to be equipped and to respond on their terms. So I would say, quite frankly, among the many challenges that exist in in contexts such as rural environments, one of the key ones that stand out for us, and certainly for them, what we've heard is, in fact, a changing climate. And so we think as an organization, one of the best things that we can do is really to provide the necessary support in real time and to be agile enough to be responsive to the the needs of these communities as they begin to evolve and change. How big a role do you think that the growth of ecosystem services can have? And I'm thinking in terms of the expansion of the voluntary carbon markets and unlocking finance for these communities. If their communities are developing projects where they keep trees standing, for example, in return for finance, is that the way forward for many rural communities? Could we really unlock the value they have in their communities? To an extent, well, first of all, it's not the only way forward, but it it can be an important mechanism as long as, and this is a key point that I think sadly has been ignored in some instances, as long as the communities are at the center of those discussions and certainly at the center of the creation of those activities. So we as an organization, we've always taken approach that it's not about designing somehow the projects or the activities and bringing it to the communities as well-intentioned as many of these projects may be. The communities themselves need to be there at the outset to ensure that the framework for these, let's say, agroforestry projects are designed on their terms with the subtle nuances in mind, because there's enough evidence to support the what can go wrong, seriously wrong, if the communities are not at the core and are not adequately, sufficiently engaged at the forefront. And so, yes, that can be an important mechanism in unlocking the kind of resources or access to capital that's needed. But I think it has to be done in a thoughtful, sensitive manner in order for it to be successful. It does feel that there's a sense that involving local communities is essential for these things to work. At the same time, everyone's pushing forward and realizing that all these programs do have to work at scale on a global level to achieve the sort of 2030, 2050 targets that we've been talking about on a global scale. Anyway, it's a very exciting time, but thank you very much indeed, Peter Williams, president of the IIRR for your insight today. Thank you. My pleasure, Ian. Do check out the Innovation Forum website for all the usual analysis and interviews. And if you are going to be in Glasgow for the COP26 meetings in a couple of weeks, please get in touch. I'll be reporting on what's going on and we'll be looking to include as many hopes and views as possible as the meetings unfold. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh. Until next week, goodbye.